We're in Exodus chapter 3. We're moving verse by verse through the book of Exodus. Would you turn there or open up your device? The Great I Am and the Great Commission. Exodus 3. What I'd like to do is read our passage. Uh, if you're physically able to stand, would you stand to your feet? And we'll come, we'll come back and break it down. Exodus 3, verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. I am aware of their sufferings. Exodus 3, 8. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, a land to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he, God, said, Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore, 15 final verse, said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Father, thank you for your living word. Thank you that you have revealed an incredible truth here in this section, one that's really been wrestled with uh, by scholars for some 3,000 years now, the name of God. What is his name? What does this mean? And how does it relate to Moses' mission and to our own time and the great commission in which uh, you've trusted us with to go to the world with the gospel, to make disciples of all the nations? Help us, Lord, to continue on that mission, knowing that you are with us, you are for us, you love your people, you came down to deliver us in the person of Jesus Christ. And thank you for the, the great connection to the gospel here. We, may you continue to open up our eyes to knowledge and truth of who you are and what you've called us to be and who we are in you. And may you bless each and every person who's gathered to hear from you. Help me to get out of your way. May you speak, and may we have ears to hear what you say to your church for your glory. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Exodus 3, 7 is where we will begin the great I Am and the Great Commission. Within this grand text, the doctrine of the great I Am and the Great Commission of a man who will be used mightily by I Am are before us. One writer says, the God who saves is the God who sends. The God who saved you is the God who has a call on your life to send you, 
Now, where your particular destination is, is not always known to us. And some of you may not fully even understand what your spiritual gifts are. And we're going to have a spiritual gifts class in the relatively near future to help you with that, to discover your gift and how to employ that gift. Because Christianity is not just about attending a church. That's part of it. It's fellowship. It's inciting one another to, literally inciting one another to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. That's why we need to be together. But when we do that, we call it a holy huddle and then we go out to a lost world. And we have a job to do. We have a calling to walk in. Good works, which God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2.10. And so the Lord, the, the scene is the Lord is calling to Moses from the burning bush. We're still at the burning bush. We paused at verse 6 last week. And the Lord says these words to Moses. Remember, he reminds Moses, you're on holy ground. Moses is afraid to look at God. He hides his face. And the bush is burning but not consumed. And we told you that's a picture of Israel uh, burning in, under Egyptian bondage and affliction, yet not consumed because Yahweh is their God. And the burning bush is a picture of God's eternality and self-existence. It ties to his name because he will always burn brightly. Nothing will ever extinguish his presence because he is not codependent. He is not contingent on anything. He is self-existent. And the bush in some way radiates that truth. And as Moses is before the bush and he has taken off his sandals by God's instruction, and the, the first one identified in the bush is the angel of the Lord. We believe that's Jesus prior to his birth. He says these words, the Lord said, seven, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Now, when God says that, I would imagine that that's probably a question that Moses had. Remember, one of the major scenes in Moses' life is he goes out to see the affliction of his people, and he sees what's going on, and he tries to intervene. He sees an Egyptian abusing an Israelite, and he actually kills the man and buries the body. And then he tries to break up a fight between two Hebrews, and they basically said, who made you judge and king over us, man? And then Pharaoh finds out about what Moses did, and Moses has to skip town. He's now spent the last 40 years in Midian as a shepherd, and God has been teaching him about how to shepherd his people. But Moses may have had that question burning in his mind. You know, what about my people? I'm still out here. What is going to happen to them? And we, we often wonder about the pain and sorrow in our world. How long, O oh Lord, will this go on? How long will the atrocities on the earth go on until you intervene? And sometimes we may not realize fully what we're asking for because when God intervenes, sometimes it gets really potentially ugly because he can judge and he is just. And we ask for his help and his intervention, but do we really know what we're asking for? Because God will judge. And I think we celebrate his patience in our own lives. God affirms that he has seen what's going on. The affliction of my people who are in Egypt, I know. I've given heed to their cry. I've heard them crying out, NIV, because of their slave drivers, NIV, or taskmasters. I am aware of their sufferings. If you have an NIV, it says, I am concerned about their suffering. 
Sometimes it feels as we live this life and we watch the atrocities of this life that we wonder, well, are you concerned, Lord? Or we might say something like this. Maybe we don't speak it out, but where, you, where have you been all this time? If you are concerned, why weren't you concerned 40 years ago? Or, you know, you might apply it to your own trouble. Some of us have had trauma in our past, and we may wonder, where was God? And the reminder of the burning bush is that God was in the midst of the fire with his people the whole time. He will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us. And even though we don't always sense or feel it, God says he will never leave us. This is, this is a uh, commentator's translation. He says, Long have I seen the degradation of my people who are in Egypt and their cry because of their taskmasters. And I have heard and I know his or their pain. God knows what's going on on the entire planet. Isn't it a wonder that he doesn't judge more quickly? Isn't it a wonder for many of us who have radical stories of redemption that he didn't just judge us on the spot and destroy us on the spot and give us what we deserved. He gave us grace upon grace. That song that we sang earlier, the grace of God never runs out. That's that idea that it's an ever-increasing flow to broken people like you and like me. And God even says that one day in Isaiah 19, the Egyptians would be his people. He has a heart for all people, not just for here the people of Israel. I want you to turn, hold your place in Exodus, turn to Isaiah 52. This is a passage that just struck me. And uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you'd like to, turn there. And I want to read it to you. This is God commenting on his people's situation. He says, Awake, awake, Isaiah 52, 1. Clothe yourself in strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no more come into you. Isaiah 52, 2. Shake yourself from the dust, rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck. This is slavery uh, imagery. O captive daughter of Zion. 52.3 of Isaiah. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. Thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord. Seeing that my people have been taken away without cause, again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. That's important for this morning. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. I haven't gone anywhere, you could say. And then a gospel verse, how lovely on the mountains, quoted in Romans 10, 15 are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. I want you to turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 16 and I want to show you a scene where God in the book of Genesis sees the pain of a woman, a woman who was an Egyptian. She was actually brought into the household of Abram and Sarai, who became Abraham and Sarah, Genesis 16. And she was an Egyptian slave, uh, kind of the reverse situation. And she was serving the household, and she was then impregnated by Abraham because Sarah could not have children at this time. And we, we know the story that they got ahead of God, and 
uh, a child was to be born named Ishmael. But I want you to see this idea of God seeing our suffering and how this shows up. It says, Genesis 16, 11. The angel of the Lord, that's the same one that spoke to Moses from the bush. We believe that's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, God the Son, second person of the Holy Trinity, said to her, Hagar, further, Genesis 16, 11, Behold, you are with child. You shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she, Hagar, called the name, that's Shem in Hebrew, of the Lord, that's Yahweh, who spoke to her, Thou art a God who sees, that's El Ra'ah. For she said, I have remained alive after seeing him. No doubt the angel of the Lord, once again, is a theophany or an appearance of God. God sees me. Sometimes we have faith questions like, does God see my suffering? Is it only the heroes of the Bible? Is it only these specific people that God sees? Well, here's Hagar, an Egyptian slave. She's not even really part of the the promised family, if you will, but God sees her pain as well. And she says, ESV, you are a God of seeing. She said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. The uh, verse is translated this way in the New Living Translation. So the well, that well was named Bier Lahoy Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. You are the God who sees me. And that is a powerful idea in our lives because we have times when we wonder, does God know what I'm going through? Uh, I feel lonely. I, maybe you're in a situation where you're a caretaker and you're wondering, you know, in the everyday, uh, you know, grind of life. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. Maybe your company's not doing well or whatever, wherever you may be. Does God see what I'm going through? Does he hear my prayers? And it is interesting that Hagar calls God the God who sees me. And Hagar is the only woman that I know of in the Bible who confers a name on God. The only uh, male or female in the Old Testament who confirms a name on God, the God of seeing or the God who sees me. When she calls him Shem or the name, in the Hebrew picture language, the name Shem is what destroys chaos. What destroys chaos in my life is the name. Isn't that cool? Our lives can be so chaotic and so difficult, and God comes into our life and says, I see you. I see the chaos. I see the affliction. I know your pain. And God will speak to her into that situation and tell her what to do. I waited, if you go back to Exodus 3, I waited patiently, says David, for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. And he brought me up. We're going to see this language in a moment. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. Literally, I could see the clay of Egyptian bondage and the mud dance that they did for Pharaoh to make the bricks. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. 
I waited for the Lord and he heard my cry. And sometimes in the waiting is the times of the biggest growth. God knows what he's doing. And sometimes we are in literally in God's waiting room. You ever spent some time in waiting rooms? I'm not sure what it is about doctors and dentists, but uh, your appointment time generally means nothing. <laughs> you ever notice that? You show up and you're like, why am I here? <laughs> and it's a philosophical, spiritual question. Why am I here? Anyway, never mind. And you wait. And the waiting room is not the most comfortable place to be, but God does work in the waiting room. And he grows us. And so this one who has appeared to Moses identified himself as the God of his fathers in verse uh, 6 says, I'm aware. He says, I have come down to deliver or rescue them. We're back in Exodus 3.8. From the power of the Egyptians. I've come down to bring them up. I've come down to bring them up. This is what God does in our life. He reaches into our lives to raise us up, to redeem us out of the miry clay. Often what we've created our own taskmasters, our own sin that easily entangles us. And he says, I want to lift you out of that. I want to lift you out of the slavery. I want to lift you out of the mud. I want to lift you out of the quicksand. And sometimes we feel so stuck that we're sinking. And we're like, Lord, do you see? I feel like I'm, I'm up to my chin in this stuff. Help! And the lifeline comes. And interestingly enough, the one within the bush, we believe, is Jesus. Before he became that baby in Bethlehem, he came down. I've come down because I care. Sometimes people say, does God care? You know, if he would just open up the sky and say, here I am. I'm God. There is a God. There is a heaven. Wouldn't that be so much easier? But here's the truth. God did come down. Amen. He entered into our pain in the person of Christ, born in a stable, not in a palace, born to uh, live the perfect life that we can never live, to bear witness to the truth, to die a terrible death, to enter into our pain, to be treated as if he had committed my sin and your sin and the collective sin of humanity. God does care. That's why I'm a Christian. Jesus entered into my pain. Not always on my timeline, no doubt. Not always the way that I would think or I would imagine. So he says, I've come down. I've come down to bring them up. Redemption is not just about salvation. It's salvation from something, listen, to something. You get saved out of the world and you become a servant of Christ. You get saved out of the kingdom of Satan, if you will, to the kingdom of God, to serve a different Lord, a different God, a different king, to march to the beat of a different drummer, the one who made you and loved you. Amen? That's what it's about. I've come down to bring them up. And when we witness to our friends, that's what we need to say. Salvation is about coming up. It's about rising up to new life from that land to a good and spacious land. This is the promised land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. These are descriptions of bounty and plenty to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Parasite. No, I'm sorry, that's the Parasite. <laughs> the Hivite, the Jebusite, the Coronite, 
the Yorberlindite. No, just. And Moses had to be thinking, yes, you've come down. This is something that I've been thinking about, wondering about. Considering the theological perspective of why you would allow your children to suffer, you've come down to deliver. The Hebrew word natsel, it means to snatch up, to rescue, to save. This is all pictures of the gospel. Jesus came down to rescue, to save us. This is John 6, 38 through 42. Jesus speaking, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, reading from John 6, 40. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. I came down to raise up. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Because he came down to save us. He became a man to enter into our pain, to empathize and sympathize, to lift us up, to deliver us from the power of Satan, sin, and death. And now, behold, Exodus 3, 9, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. It's time. It's go time. Therefore, come now. Now, here's Moses. Yes! Go get him, Lord. Uh, I'd like a full report when you get back. Yes! And the Lord says, and I will send you. Who? There anybody around in this burning bush? <laughs> but me? <laughs> I think all he's going to hear is, meh, meh. <laughs> That's it. It's only sheep. Here I am, Lord. He, earlier he had responded when the Lord said, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Some, some commentators believe that's a, a, like, tell me what you want me to do kind of phrase, here I am. Uh, little Samuel said it to God. When he spoke to him, uh, Isaiah, when he saw that vision of the Lord, the Lord said, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am, Lord, send me. Not him, not her, send me. And Moses is told, I'm sending you. Go now. If you have a, a New American Standard, it says come now. The, the Hebrew could be so now go, if you have an NIV, or come now. It's kind of an interesting phrase because I think this is the idea. It's yalak in Hebrew. It means to walk or to carry. So God is saying, okay, it's time to go. It's time to walk, but it has the idea of carry. And come now to me says, come to me and I will send you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I, Jesus says, will give you rest. In order to do God's work, you have to come to him. You have to abide in him, and then you go. Amen? You don't try to do it on your own. And Moses has significant questions about his ability. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. It's like, I'm going to send you to the president of the United States, and you're going to say these words. You'll walk into the Oval Office, and you'll warn. And you're like, uh, is there anybody else in the desert of Midian? You can't be talking to me. I've been in the desert for 40 years. I'm a, 
I'm comfortable here. This is where I live. This is, I've got a routine. I wake up at this time. I have my coffee at this time. What do you mean, you go? And I think the Lord would say to some of you this morning, bring the burden of the mission to me. I'm not calling you to do this on your own. I'm saying I'm going to empower you to do this. See, when we feel a sense of calling on our lives, the first thing we do is begin to analyze our abilities. Sheesh, am I the man or the woman who could do this? I got news for you. You ain't. <laughs> the moment that you feel qualified, you're in trouble. In, in the kingdom, you have to bring your weaknesses to the king. And he says, I'm going to strengthen you. And this is what Moses is wrestling with. You're going to bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses 11 said to God, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh. That I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. All kinds of commentary on Moses' response. Is he afraid? Is he too comfortable? See where it says, but Moses? We have uh, Pastor John, and he's been in ministry a lot of time, uh, long time, and he says, when he's in counseling, whenever somebody says, but, he says, everything that follows but is baloney. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but. Uh, there's some fine print here that I'd like you to read. Uh, I, I don't do windows. I, I don't work on Tuesday afternoons. Yeah, but, yeah, but, 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 but. Baloney. <laughs> right? That's, don't you sometimes wait for the but? Someone's talking to you, and they're like, and this and that, and it would be great. But. Which is just another way to say, all that I just said, never mind, because I'm now I'm going to give you my excuse of why I'm not going to do it. That was all just flowery, preparatory, just to make me feel better about the butt that I'm about to put before you for my excuse. But Moses said to God, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh. And I think that we could see some humility here. The Bible does say that Moses was the most humble man that was on the planet at that time. He was a humble man. And maybe we just give the benefit of the doubt in saying, rather than making him making excuses, he's just seriously doubting his ability, the goods that he has to do this. And I think anybody who's ever done any kind of ministry feels that way. The first time you've tried to share your faith with a friend, the, the first time you decided, I'll, okay, I'll teach that Sunday school class, but those kids, I don't know what's going to happen in there. I'm intimidated or... Uh, you know, the first time I took a stand in the office on a moral issue and decided that, you know what? I'm not going to hide that I'm a Christian. Who am I? You won't really know who you are until you know who he is. And there's all kinds of people walking our streets this morning that this is the phrase, this is the modern phrase, I have to find out who I am. Really? Oh, I think you know all too well who you are. I think, and I look, I know what people are saying when they say that, but here's the bottom line. You aren't going to know who you are, why you're on this planet, where you're headed, what your purpose is, until you know who he is. And that's where we're going here. 
Who am I? Moses, I'll tell you who you are. You're a baby. You're a, a man who was a baby at one time, and your mom was inspired by my mighty hand to save you in an ark that went down the Nile, and everything's been orchestrated for this moment for you to serve me. I'll tell you who you are. You're the deliverer. Not because you have the goods, but because I'm going to do it through you. That's so much different than, can I really do this? Am I strong enough? Am I smart enough? Even David said to God, who am I? Oh, Lord God, that, what is my house that you've brought me this far? 2 Samuel 7, 18. I think if we stay there, if we're always in awe of anything that God does for us, we're in a good place. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Look, I realize in my life, and I'm sure you do in yours, that there's so many privileges that God gives me that I don't deserve. But somehow in his grace, he has said, I will qualify you. One writer says, this is the first of several attempts to get out of this, quite possibly quoting what fuels Moses' self-doubts on this occasion are very vivid and painful memories of failed efforts many years earlier to come to the rescue of one of his people. Past defeats and humiliations tend to dog us more than past victories. Time does not heal all wounds. On occasions, the passing of time exacerbates them. The failure to deliver the wounded Hebrew is much more in Moses' memory bank than the successful deliverance of the priest's seven daughters at the well. Don't we do this? Instead of us celebrating the past victories that we've had and where God gave us the goods that we needed, we focus on the defeats. And we, we do things like this. Oh, if I woulda, shoulda, coulda, woulda, shoulda, shoulda. I shoulda said this right there. I woulda Googled it. I woulda given up. You know, and we, we go through this stuff where we focus all only on the negative. Do you do that? I'm not strong enough. Who am I? God is going to shift Moses' attention away from his abilities because God doesn't use the most powerful on the planet. Have you noticed? He doesn't use the wealthy or the, the, the well-to-do, but he uses the foolish things of the world. Our weakness becomes an opportunity for God's strength. And he said, certainly I will be with you, 12. And this shall be the sign to you that, I, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. I will be with you. Is that enough? The call to God's service, quoting, always comes with the promise of God's presence. Let me say that one more time. The call to God's service always comes with the promise of God's presence. And this is the only time that I know of that God will say to Moses, I will be with you. He says it once to him. Now, it's said over 100 times in the Old Testament to different people. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Joshua, I'll be with you. Jeremiah, I know you're young and you feel like you, maybe no one will listen to you. I will be with you. That should make the difference. And that's not just for Old Testament characters. I will be with you till the end of the ages within the great commission of Matthew 28, 20. I will never leave you or forsake you is in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. It's for you. Do you believe that? I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you. When you go to share the gospel, you need to know that. 
When you go to reconcile something from the past, you need to know that I am with you. The Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, lives inside of you. Do you know that? To empower you, to give you the fruits of the Spirit, to give you a baptism of boldness, you must not and you cannot rely on yourself. That's when I get in trouble. That's what we call walking in the flesh. And we all struggle with that one, right? And sometimes we've gotten ourselves in the biggest trouble as Christians when we've operated in the flesh. Instead of really praying about something, instead of really reading our Bible that morning, before we go into that confrontation, before we deal with that issue, we must put on the armor of God. We must ask God to fill us and us being kept being filled with the Spirit. Amen? This is, this is what's happening here. I'll be with you. I'm not leaving you. God's response to fear is not to explain it away as illusory, like it doesn't really happen, but to replace it with another more powerful belief and trust in his presence. Essentially, quoting one commentary, for Pharaoh to get to you, Moses, he'll have to go through me. That's what God is saying. Will you trust me? And you know, in the moment at the burning bush, sometimes we get inspired. We're at church and like, yeah, this week, it's all over. The devil's not going to win this week. Here I go. I've just been by the burning bush, right? Woo! Off into that world. Take about 20 minutes. <laughs> Maybe sometimes five minutes. Why'd that person cut me off? That person goes to living truth. Cut me off in the parking lot. <laughs> Who took the last maple bar this morning? Didn't they know that was mine? You go to one service. That person's sitting in my seat. Any of you go through that the last couple of Sundays? You don't have to confess it. But we'll set up an appointment this week if you need one. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So this last uh, week, I was watching some Christian television, and uh, some of you may have seen this. It's, it was called Pastors Under Fire, and it was about uh, pastors who are trying to stake, take a stand against the, uh, the, the regulations coming down from the government about churches being open. And there's a pastor um, over a church in Pasadena area. I can't think of his name right now. And he was talking about... Uh, a lawsuit that was going on and the regulations that were coming down on his church. And a lot of these pastors have taken stands, have come out of socialist, communist countries. And they're like, oh, please don't let this happen to America. And they, don't, they really plead with Americans to see what's going on here. It's, it's much bigger than a virus. We know there's a real virus, but it's much bigger than a virus. There are dichotomies being made between you know, uh, religious establishments trying to open to minister to people when, when you have depression and abuse and all these things skyrocketing and they'll allow secular things to go on but not religious things. That's not about a virus. But anyway, this pastor quoted 2 Timothy 1.7 and he said, God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power, love, and a sound mind. Listen to this. He said, do you know that that Greek word in 2 Timothy 1.7 for fear is not phobos, it's not ph. O-B-O-S, where we get phobias. That's a normal Greek word there for fear. 
It's dilea. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. Do you know what the word actually means? It means to be a coward. God has not given you the spirit of being a coward. And this guy looks into the camera and says, I'm fearful that cowardice is playing a big role in decision-making in the church today. He said, he said frankly, I'm shocked that so many Christ, Christian pastors are backing down. It's, it's scary. And it shows you how quickly this can happen. And, I, and I'm not going to make commentary on all the parameters within a given church and what is the best decision for that church because I don't want to sound like I'm being judgmental up here because that's not my goal. But I, I want you to see the bigger picture of just infringement and at what point will the church say the doors must be open because we have a higher edict from God to minister to the people. And you know, in Revelation 21.8, it says the cowardly are going to be outside the gates. And I'll tell you, as a person who is pastoring a flock and you know, I'm, my, I'm out there in terms of radio and, and other platforms. This is a very real challenge to any of our humanity to say, okay, now, now what? Do you, just, do you just preach sermons? Do you just quote Bible verses? Or do you believe that the same God who sent Moses can empower you? Because if we don't take that application to our modern lives, our Christianity, frankly, folks, means very little. I'm just being honest. We're just kind of checking in and listening to preaching and going our merry way, but it doesn't really affect our decision-making now and what, what we're, where we're willing to stand. Moses is going to have to do this by faith, and the sign is unusual. God says, you'll know the sign because you'll end up back here worshiping me on this mountain. And if you're Moses, you're like, uh, how does that help? <laughs> uh, that's a future sign. I need something now. <laughs> right? You'll know that it was me because you'll be back here after it's all over. <laughs> what? But I have to tell you that that's a lot of the promises I'm banking my life on right now. I'm walking by faith and not by sight that there is a heaven and that there is a resurrection and those are future promises and I'm going to know the fulfillment of them in the future. And I know the one in whom I have trusted and I know there's enough to believe it, but yet still, it's still future. Could you give me something now? <laughs> Moses might be saying. And this is what it means to walk by faith. It, it's not a blind leap into a dark cave, but it, it's certainly, I'm standing on the promise. If that's what you said, I'm going to end up back at this mountain and you're manifesting yourself as a bush that burns and is not consumed, so that is a sign, but the sign is to come back. That's the plain language. So Moses has a few more questions, and we're, we're winding down, but let's take a look. Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Like the tin man and the wizard of Oz. Suppose... When I get there, he won't give me a heart. <laughs> Supposing that this happens. Suppose, how many of you are good at painting scenarios that never come to pass? <laughs> Suppose that I witness to that person in the grocery line and they grow six feet taller than they actually are and claws come out of their hands and rah, they just swallow me in the Stater Brothers line. Suppose. 
You know, we create these giants in our minds. Suppose this, so suppose, you know, you can stay stuck in the suppose chair all day long. Do you know that there's never once a record of anybody asking Moses for God's name when he shows up? Nobody. Nobody asked him. Hey, uh, who's the name of that God? That <laughs> Nobody. Now, I'm not saying it's not an important question because when we're talking to people, we got to define our terms, right? We're not just talking about any old God. We're talking about the God of the Bible. We're saying that salvation is found through the true God. And he is to be distinct from all other false gods and idols. What am I going to say? What do I tell them? What if I, what if I show up at an ancient Starbucks in Egypt and I start telling some of the elders that there was this bush that was burning and I heard a voice and it said, go get them and bring them back to the mountain. <laughs> some people might be saying, how hot is the desert sun out there, Moses? Are you kidding? You, you're hearing voices now and seeing bushes that burn and are not consumed? Hey, here's a business card of this doctor I've been seeing. I talk to him an hour a week. <laughs> Moses is like, I, I need the full weight of divine authority. Do you know that when uh, Moses and Aaron share what God has them to share, the people believe when they find out, this is Exodus 4.31, that God's concerned about them, they bow low and they worship. They don't ask for clarification of the, the vision or the burning bush. They don't ask for God's name or even Moses' credentials. They bow. And Sometimes we create problems and issues that are not there. Now, final two verses. God said to Moses, okay, you want to know my name? I am... Exodus 3.14, who I am. That is Eyeh, E-H-Y-E-H, Eyeh. Who is Esher, and I am is Eyeh. So you would say it, Eyeh, Eyeh, Esher, Eyeh. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And <laughs> you're Moses like, whew, wow, I am. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, see that name? That's Y-H-W-H. That's the tetragrammatron. The four consonants. It's like that because the earliest Hebrew manuscripts didn't have vowels. And so we don't know the... We have the consonants, but not the vowels. We have Y-H-W-H. And that is best pronounced Yahweh. Yahweh but that we're guessing on the vowels. So what is the name of God? Is it I am or is it Yahweh the Lord? Or is it a little bit of both? I'm the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Certainly he's identifying a name. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Which is his name, the I am or the Lord? Or is it both? Well, first of all, the word Lord, you will see often like in the NIV with a large capital L and small caps on the O-R-D. And whenever you see that, that's Yahweh. If you see Lord with a capital L and then regular letters, O-R-D, that's typically Adonai. 
but Lord is all caps or large cap, small cap. That's always Yahweh. So you can know when you read your Bible that when you see that, you've got Y-H-W-H. That's Yahweh. So what does this mean? The four letters appear 6,283 times in the Old Testament. And probably the proper way to say it is Yahweh, not Jehovah. That's a misunderstanding from the medieval church of the vowels, and there's more that could be said. The Lord's response to Moses is, I am, and I'm Yahweh. And I think they both point in the same direction. The idea is to be. I am means to be. It speaks of self-existence, completeness, authority. Let's work back for a moment. I'm reading from my notes because I want to be precise. What God is showing Moses and us is that God's name, YHWH, in verse 15, is that he is the maker of all that is. In his hand is all that exists, or he is self-existence. He's not I was, he's not I will be, although you could say that as long as you include I am. He is the present tense. The present tense God. I am. That's what you need to know. He holds it all together, Colossians 1.17, Hebrews 1.3. He is not contingent. He is not dependent. He is not codependent. He is self-sufficient, and the burning bush is indicative of who he is. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were formed, before anything had birth, you were there. You are self-existent. You are eternal. And that's why you are dependable. God's name is not just about ontology, nature. It's about theology. This is really important. Please listen. The dominant ideas of Yahweh and I am in these verses are God's nature and presence, which flow from his nature. God, says one writer, will always be there for his people in a distant Egypt too, even if that divine presence is questioned and imperceptible. He will always be whatever his people need him to be at any given moment. In any given place, if they need a deliverer, that's Yahweh. If they need grace and mercy and forgiveness, that's Yahweh. He is the great I am. And in John chapter 8, Jesus is having a debate with the Jewish leadership. And Jesus says these words, and just write this down. I wish I had the time to develop this. I said, therefore, to you that you will die in your sins, John 8, 24, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He goes on, John 8, 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak the things the Father taught me. And then later in the chapter, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham and Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, remember, I am. And they took up stones to stone him because they knew what he was saying. He was claiming the divine name. You could also look at Isaiah 43.10 and other places. Jesus essentially is saying in John chapter 8, I am the voice of the burning bush. And if you reject who I am, you will die in your sins. I've come down to deliver you. See the connection to the gospel? I've come down out of heaven to be the bread of life for you. If you won't take me in, if you won't believe in me, then you will die in your sin. If you need empowerment, that's Yahweh. 
If you need rebuke and chastisement, that's Yahweh. If you need guidance, that's Yahweh. For God is a, quoting, I will be what I will be God, and I will be what I need to be for you, God. The rest of Exodus is God living up to his name. Amen?